everyone. This is Julia Schieffer of DerivSource. You're listening to our Derivatives Industry Influencers series. And this podcast is one of many interviews with influencers from various corners of the OTC derivatives market. Please listen to others in the series or go to the DerivSource website to watch the videos of these interviews. Enjoy and tune in next time. I have with me David Brown, Technical Manager, Derivatives at Royal London Asset Management. Welcome to the video. Thanks for having me. Now, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin? I've worked in operations, base roles for the last 25 years. 25, yeah, probably about that. And effectively, I've covered most areas of operations, including all types of reconciliations, corporate actions, settlements. In the last 15 years, I've had a very prime focus on derivative operations, both ETDs and OTCs. And the last two or three years, I've really been working as a, a type of project manager, SME specialist, developing our EMEA and regulatory change derivative operations at Royal London. So, uh, Amir, Central Clearing, that's the, the topic that we're going to be talking about today. You've already gone through this process with Royal London Asset Management. Can you tell us a little bit as to why you decided to start clearing already under Amir? We basically decided to be early adopters. I think when the regulations were first proposed, as I say, proposed rather than published, I think a lot of people were sceptical how long it would take to come through and a lot of people were making decisions to wait until the mandatory deadlines were, were finalised. We took the strategic decision that we believe central clearing was definitely going to become in fruition. And we wanted to be really at the heart of it and help evolve the process within the industry so that we could gain benefits from our, for our clients. We felt that being at the heart of it, we could build um, an efficient and cost-effective process for our clients. And we wished to really leverage our existing relationships and try and create the best services we could from those. So examples of that is we believe we've helped evolve some of the CCP's product offerings. We've been actively engaged with those CCP's and tried to get them to evolve some of their offerings to help us in our operational aspects to some degree. With clearing members, we've been actively engaged with clearing members. Again, looking at what systems they can provide for us and also how they were fitting to our legacy systems as well and what new systems that we required to employ. And also, we did envisage that it would take some time to actually get our operating model up and running in an efficient manner, not just to incorporate the central clearing obligation, but all of the obligations born out of EMEA, including trade reporting and reconciliations and timely confirmations and so forth. So, David, can you walk us through how you prepared for clearing? There's so many different components of it. How did you do it and how did you get started? First of all, we needed to look at what scope we had. By that, I mean our client base, what products our clients required to be centrally cleared, not just from a mandatory perspective, but also really what products it would make sense for them to clear as well. So once we actually got to that conclusion of all of the clients that would require clearing and also the products it makes sense to actually clear, we assessed the CCPs, the, the main CCPs in the UK or Europe as they are, because we are primarily UK based. And we looked at what offerings they had, so what services they could provide, which products they could clear, or more to the point for a buy side perspective, what products they will be actively clearing in the future, and how easy it will be to access that. One of the main things of a CCP as well is not just what products they can clear, but also are you satisfied that they've got the liquidity of the products you wished to trade, which is also very important. Once we'd assessed the CCPs, 
Really in parallel as well, we looked at what clearing members we wish to engage with to actively clear trades on behalf of our clients. We went through an RFP process with our brokers and we looked at a lot of brokers, you know, we looked at their credit rating, we looked at what offering, you know, operational offering they could offer and also the costs involved, I mean, very important. When I say the costs involved, we started clearing over two years ago and there was a lot of headline catching fees banded around at that time. We didn't actually, we was fairly prudent and we didn't go for the cheapest is best. We actually looked at the fees in their total and really assessed whether we thought that clearing member would be around for years to come. We looked for not the cheapest fees, but the most sensible fees and the credit worthiness of those counterparties to make sure that we were taking our partnerships with members that we felt would be able to offer us services for, for years to come. Also, when, when we look at clearing members, I suppose in a way, we also looked at, we made sure we had an, a diverse enough set of clearing members so that in the event of any defaults, we could pull those trades away from them into another clearing member yeah, to, to ensure that we've got diversity for our clients and uh, basically spread the risk as well. Do you mind me asking how many clearing brokers do you currently use? At the moment, we've got three clearing members okay. that we're onboarded with, and that will rise, rise to at least five by the time we finish that central clearing okay. process. It does depend on the size of the book for each client, so we looked at each client accordingly to make sure they had enough cover. It also uh, depends on what clearing limits you can also gain from each clearing member. Once we'd actually engaged with the um, clearing members, we went through the what I'd call a rather painful aspect, which is the legal negotiations. So if we look at the legal contracts that are involved in central clearing, they have evolved in the last two or three years, but there's a lot of standardized broker contracts out there. But they're generally standardized via terms that have been negotiated by mainly the sell side organizations. Buy side organizations may not be totally comfortable with some of the terms in those. So we've already negotiated terms with some brokers, and as I say, we're still in process with others, but we certain, they're certainly tough negotiations. It was a long process then. It is a long process, and it continues to be a long process, but it's, it's a very important process as well. So, and do you think that's one of the, one of the challenges that, that you would recommend that other asset managers who might be embarking on this process you know, in the next year, that maybe that's something that they shouldn't underestimate is the amount of time to go through and to get these legal documents agreed between, uh, with their brokers? Um, I think all of what you've said is definitely correct. So I would say do not underestimate the time to frames involved. I would give a minimum of six months, but a year is very possible as well. It may take a year to get these over the line. As the market for central clearing is actually drying up a little bit, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto in a moment, I've heard people saying, well, you know, we just have to accept the contract that's put in front of us. I don't believe that to be the case. If you look at some of the terms, I think you'll find most legal firms would be very reluctant, should I say, to sign off a, a contract that a clearing member says, you know, is, is mandatory and must just, just must be signed. As always with everything in life, there's some wiggle room that people should Keep in mind as they go through this Exactly. Process. A standardized contract is not a total, this, this suits us down to the ground contract, that you definitely need to negotiate those. A lot more time to negotiate them as well. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't started yet, you definitely need to start. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, that's a goal for 2016 January, I would imagine. 
So, you know, I interrupted you here a little bit. In terms of the preparing for clearing, you've talked about moving or doing the RFP process with the brokers. You talked about assessing the CCPs on offer and, and what is fit for purpose for you and for yep. Royal London Asset Management and legal docs. Were there any other kind of big steps that you had to take as you prepared, either operationally or, you know, big challenges? I think one of the processes that gets overlooked a lot when people talk about the central clearing operation at the moment is actually your operating model, your in-house or fire a third-party operating model. So central clearing for buy side is a very new concept. In a way, people say it's going to work exactly the same as exchange traded, but I think there's, there may be leverage there, but there's a lot of issues still to overcome. So from an operation operating model perspective, you need to ensure that your systems, can they capture these OTC trades that you execute? Can you confirm them in such a way that they can also get passed down to your clearing member via the CCP and back up for confirmation? So you need to ensure that you are confirming your trades through the correct mechanism so that they can get into central clearing in the first place. Once you've got the trades captured, can you actually process the collateral arrangements every day? You've got initial margin, you've got variation margins slightly different from the current OTC bilateral process. Can you capture all of the additional data that you require from an OTC trade now? So a typical example is a UTI. Where does you need a UTI to be able to forward those trades on to EMEA reporting? Can you get that back from your clearer in an adequate manner? Can your system capture that? And then you go into a whole new aspect of can those trades then filter through to your accounting systems and be accounted for in the correct and robust manner that they should be? And presumably, really, this has to be automated in order to meet the deadlines required. In an ideal world? Yeah. Everything should be automated in an ideal world. I think those that have worked in operations realize that it's not an ideal world and there's always manual intervention somewhere around the periphery of your core infrastructure. So if we take a centrally cleared trade at the moment, can you automate the settlement? Probably not at the moment. Most accounting systems um, weren't built for derivatives. So I don't mean to make a blanket statement about that. A lot of them wasn't. So a lot of the trades get put in, in in such a manner. And now you've also got to work out where you're going to put that variation margin in your accounting system, where you're going to put the initial margin in that accounting system. How are you going to reconcile the margin requirements from the that come in effectively from the CCP via the uh, central, say, the clearing member? And how are you going to decide which collateral you're going to post? Also, what, how the operational teams are going to get that collateral to the clearing member within the timeframes. Sticking with the operations question, because, you know, obviously it's a hugely complex operating model, as you've just described. Was there a really big challenge that you came across as you worked through the operations and the systems and the technology to, was it collateral or collecting the data? The collateral issues will certainly be one for the future when we're clearing across a wide range of clients on various portfolios. Because if we take bilateral trades, your profit and loss effectively your variation margin. At the moment, you can, in a bilateral world, post stock collateral to, to satisfy the margin requirements or collateral requirements as they are at this point in time. But once they go into centrally clear trades, the variation margin must be paid in cash in the denomination of those trades. Some portfolios might not actually have these cash reserves sitting around. A typical example is pension funds at the moment have, have an exemption for one of the reasons is primarily, will they have that cash collateral? So at the moment, if you're only processing for funds that hold large cash reserves, it's not an issue, but I think going forward, it will be in the future. One of the issues that we've had and carrying on the theme of margin 
is in an ideal world, as I say, we need to capture the data that comes in from the trades, but also if you're using diverse broker setup, so you're using three or four different clearing members, you need to be able to capture the requirements, the margin requirements from each of those brokers each day. Now, ideally, you'd get a uniform set of statements that come in from each one of those brokers so that you can pass them into your system and it generates the amount of margin that you wish to pay out. The reality is there are no standardized reporting out there across the clearing members. Each one is trying to use their legacy systems or building new systems, but there's no uniform method of receiving those statements in at the moment. So we basically have to take those in at our company and, and that's a manual process to actually enter those into our systems and also generate the payments on the back. And operationally, what you've alluded to before, you know that it has to be automated, ideally as automated as possible, but you will have these breaks in that chain where manual intervention is, yeah. is required. I would imagine most asset managers will face the similar challenges as you've just described. You know, is it just a matter of throwing resources and people at it in the short term until you can address these operationally? There's probably three aspects to this. One is, are you currently using a third party administrator for your operations? Will they support you? If that's the case, then a lot of the legwork is taken away from you. I think, secondly, you can resource it manually, but obviously that's not really a long-term solution, and eventually your wage bill <laughs> goes up. The alternative, and something that we've done ourselves, is we invested in infrastructure. So we actually invested in a, a system that was capable of capturing derivatives in a very robust manner. And this was because we took a holistic view of all of the EMEA, as I mentioned earlier, all of the EMEA obligations, and we decided to actually meet these in an efficient operational manner. We needed to be able to, most of all, importantly, capture these trades, all the aspects of these trades, and also the data enrichment of these trades. There's new data enrichment requirements. So you've got your UTIs, your LEIs, to name a few. So once we've invested in that infrastructure, we feel we're fairly reasonably well-placed to be able to disseminate that data out to the different providers and also be able to sort of like reconcile and calculate the positions both via ourselves and our third-party administrator. So you took it upon yourself to really invest in this from an infrastructure and technological perspective to get, give you a foundation really needed to support central clearing, but also, as you mentioned, trade reporting. Yes. We invested in a new system, basically. Looking to the future, David, so two questions for you. What's kind of the next step for Royal London Asset Management? You mentioned already that, you know, this is a journey and that you're not quite done yet. Is there a milestone that you hope to hit in 2016 or something that's on your plate that you're working towards next year, for instance? Although we're building out our, our central clearing offering, it's been primarily focused on our largest client at the moment. This is due to the fact that the mandatory deadline comes up for that client a lot before the... Um, well, I think it's six months to a year before our other clients. So 2016 is going to be a big challenge for us because we're going to have to try and build out the central clearing offering across all of the applicable clients and also ensure that each one of those has clearing members with sufficient clearing limits and also on preferred terms. So we anticipate there's going to be a lot of legal contracts to negotiate next year, basically ensuring that we're fair to all of our clients so that we can leverage on the best terms across all of our clearing members and ensuring that all of those clients fit within our infrastructure. Well, the final question, David, you know, it sounds like a lot of asset managers who are about to embark on this change now 
will be able to use what you've described already as kind of a blueprint for what they're going to have to go through. Is there any, any advice that you would give other asset managers who are about to start this process for how to kind of alleviate the painful process or just kind of get through it a little bit more efficiently, if at all possible? Well, I think the, the first point definitely is you need to start now. Now is probably still fairly late to start building out your central clearing capability. So now's the time definitely to start. Clearing members, I think it's quite widely known within the industry. We've had several big names actually drop out of the clearing business. So the amount of clearing services out there is definitely a shrinking pool at this point in time. Get engaged you know, as quick as you can now with clearing members to make sure that you can actually access these clearing services. I think a lot of people doing at the moment is trying to leverage existing relationships. So although clearing members aren't offering as great terms as they used to or as many uh, services as they were a year ago, if you've got a good relationship and you do have a business with those clearing members, they may be the, uh, the banks to actually try engaging with at this point in time. Certainly choose your clearing members as soon as possible and get on with those legal negotiations. And the only advice, I'm not a legal person, but you don't have to accept every single term on there. You know, make sure they fit your business as much as they fit the clearing member. And agree fees are sensible for both you and the counterpart. You know, you need to ensure that that counterpart is going to want to service you for the years to come. It's a relationship after all. It is. It's a two-way relationship. Yeah. And it has to be fair to both, both sides. And stand to the test of time as well. Exactly, because you want this to be sustainable. And in the event of a default, you need your strategic partners to be there to help you through those crises. Hopefully there won't be one, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But most important as well is start looking at your operating model as well. Ensure that you can capture these trades. How is it going to flow through your systems? Any client reporting that you require, are your systems geared up to ensure that these centrally clear trades are also reported in a robust manner to the needs of what you've already agreed? Can you value them? Are you going to reconcile them daily each day? Can you ensure that you've got the collateral available for any margin calls? Also very important, the calls to be made for collateral generally tend to, now if you look at most agreements, are very early in the morning. Are you operationally set up to be able to make those calls? Oh, that's a very good tip. Okay. If we look at bilateral world at this moment, you look at your valuations, you reconcile against your CSAs, and you make a decision whether you need to transfer collateral, and it usually settles T plus one. The timeframes are not that stringent. You know, you, you've got till 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, whatever your cutoff times are. You're fine with central clear margin. You may need to be able to be in a proposition to actually process that payment or ask for the initial margin back by 9 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning. So you need to ensure that your operational team are ready to make that call. So understanding these timeframes and then more importantly, making sure that operationally you can meet them. Well, you've given quite a lot of good advice here just to kind of summarize some of them. I mean, the get started now, (laughs) get the legal docs in order and the negotiation process is is quite a long process by the sound of it in terms of timing. But, you know, some negotiation to be had, ideally, and then look at your operating model and and some of these other tips in terms of, uh, you know, understanding where the automation can be had and maybe where, you know, you have to look at timings to understand where you stand early on. So thank you, David, for sharing your insight and your tips with us today. 